I'm going to read uh, from John chapter 17. If you want to take like a real quick moment, if you want to look that up, but the words will also be up on the screen as I read. And we're going to start in verse uh, 1, and we're going to go all the way through to verse 26. So John 17 verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and I loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them 
and I in them. Thank you, Cooksey. That was great. Well read. You're welcome. You can have a sticker. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I want you to think about your earliest experience of prayer. Um, think about your earliest memory of prayer. Now, that may, I expect, be a very varied sort of response from all of us. Um, I'll tell you about mine. mine uh, my earliest experience of prayer was in my family home. Both of my parents are Christians, and um, when I was little, we used to gather, not even when I was little, actually, as I grew up in the family home, we used to, to have a quiet time together um, in, the, in the house. Every night we would get our Bible reading notes, we would read the Bible, and uh, then we would pray. Always youngest to oldest, um, so I kind of came in the middle, um, and we would pray. And that was how I, I, was, I was given a great example. I'm very blessed, very lucky to have had that experience of prayer in my family home. Um, I was taught to pray using a, using a teaspoon, not a physical teaspoon, um, but maybe you know what I'm talking about. I, I was taught to pray TSP, which is abbreviation for teaspoon. Um, TSP. T stood for thank you. Um, so I would be like praying and I would be like, okay, thank you God for um, Lego and thank you God for Star Wars and sadly, I was just born too early to be able to thank God for Lego Star Wars, which would have just been great, but never mind. Um, so that was thank you. Then it was always S, which was for sorry, and just no matter what was happened, I was expected to say sorry for being naughty, just always sorry for being naughty. Um, and then P, which was please, and P was just uh, God, uh, please help grandma because she's old. Um, that was just... Anything that was on my mind, I would just say please for things, and I was it. And it was amen, and I would move on to my big brother who would pray. Um, that was my experience of praying. I did have other experiences. Uh, maybe yours was similar to mine. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe your experience was similar to my other experiences, which is um, in school, um, I have the joy of being a primary seven teacher um, these days. Um, but when I was in primary seven myself, we used to say the Lord's Prayer every morning. Um, we would just recite it. We would just go through it. Da, 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 da. Um, we also used to pray in the dinner school at lunchtime. Um, that we would, we would sit there with our packed lunches in front of us and our cheese strings staring up at us, desperate to be eaten. And, uh, and that my memory is that the janitor, why was this his role? I have no idea. The janitor used to stand there and he would say, hands clasped, eyes closed. And we all had to go... And then we had to all together say, for all the world so beautiful, for all the friends we meet, for all your love and kindness, and all the food we eat, thank you, Lord, amen. Um, except we were in primary school, so we kind of almost sang it for no reason, but never mind. Um, and then we would fire into the cheese strings and that. I always thought it was a weird sentence structure, that, um, for all the world so beautiful, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then saying thank you at the end. But never mind, that was just my thoughts as a child. That was fairly unthinking praying for me, to be honest with you. That was me praying just kind of by rote, just from memory and just with the anticipation of eating my lunch pretty quickly. Um, my other experience, and another experience of prayer I have is as an older, um, I say an older person, I was younger than I am now, and I'm not particularly old now, I believe. Um, but when I worked in Larbert, I worked in a high school there, and I was a, a, a Christian youth worker. I worked for various churches in Larbert, and uh, I had been leading the, the end of term assembly, and I had been told by the head teacher and all the deputies, don't be boring, don't be long, be relevant, be a cool youth worker. And I was like, okay, cool, I'll try that. Um, so I, I gave what I thought would have been quite a good talk. 
Um, and I, I, I think it was okay, right? And I'm not blowing my own trumpet. And then the minister got up to pray after me. And I don't know if any of you have ever felt like rugby tackling a minister. <laughs> Some of your faces suggest that you have, which is why I've closed the door. Um, I'm not a minister, though, so that's fine. Um, he prayed so long and so boring, and it was just pretty rubbish. Um, and yeah, that was another experience of, of prayer for me. Um, and certainly for the young people there, probably not a very positive one. Mercifully, the main thing that stuck in my mind is the experience of daily prayer in my family home. Um, and if you've got that, then you are very blessed, and you should thank God for that. Um, and if you're a parent and you are, I, 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 I implore you to pray with your, your children and teach them to pray and give them that example. I prayed very basic prayers, and it was very simple, and it was very linear. Thank you then sorry, then please, as I somewhat matured, um, I, I started to learn that, that I could mix it up a little bit, um, but also I, I kind of realized that the, they weren't just individual steps, but actually they linked into each other, that thank you, um, then led into, and I'm really sorry for this, and sorry because I'm grateful, and because I'm sorry for all the things you've done, or I've done, and then I would say please, and I knew that they were kind of linked um, into each other. I'm saying all that because we've just read um, the most glorious and perhaps the most complex, but wonderfully complex prayer um, that exists. Uh, it is Jesus' longest prayer. It is absolutely wonderful. Crooksy read it for me, which was beautifully done, um, and I am very grateful. The question I have for myself when Brian gave me this passage to, to talk on was, if prayer indicates what's on my heart, which it does, Lego and Star Wars and Grandma, um, and hopefully other things these days. If prayer reveals what's on my heart, then I thought to myself, okay, I'm reading Jesus' prayer. I want to see what his priorities are. I want to see what is on his heart. And if we should follow Jesus' example, if we should follow Jesus' example, then how can we use that to shape our prayers? What things that he is praying for can I be praying for as well? That's the question I asked myself. I last spoke here in September, um, September, and I have to say, we are basically on the same general part of John. <laughs> and I know we had Christmas. I know Christmas was there, and it was good. But we basically have not moved forward particularly. I feel like it's like Narnia. I'm reading Narnia with my, my class just now, and it's like five months here in our world is like 20 minutes in the Bible with Jesus. That's how far we've progressed since I last spoke. Um, this is all because it is actually part of this huge narrative in the Bible known as the, um, the, the farewell discourse. This is when Jesus is essentially saying goodbye to his disciples. It has all come at the Last Supper. That's the context we're in here. Um, the Last Supper, and he has said multiple things to them. He's told them that he's leaving, and they didn't really seem to get it. It was like, right, I'm going soon. Goodbye. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be with the Father. Um, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. Um, was another thing he told them. He said he was going to bestow on them his peace, and he commanded them to love each other. That's kind of the context that we've come from. If I can just skip back slightly more to probably what was about three years ago when we taught it in John chapter 8. Um, John chapter 8, he said, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And that is a very, very clear claim of Jesus to be God, using the name I am that God himself only ever uses for himself. Um, that's the context that we're coming to listen to this prayer, and that's very important. 
I asked Cooksey to read as well, um, because partly because I wanted to be able to extend my time that I was allowed to give, and I feel like I can do that, um, but also because I really wanted to. I really wanted God to speak to you clearly, and that's been really powerfully on my heart this, this past week and the past few weeks that I've been preparing. Um, I've read over this passage, and, and I've got things from it, but this is clearly, clearly an incredibly rich and an incredibly deep passage um, that, that you could, I, I did Google it, and that seems like a mistake now. I Googled it and, I, and saw what other people were saying about this, this passage, and oh my word, there's about a thousand different topics that can come out of it. And, and in this passage, you can, people seem to, oh, there's three hour long sermons on it, so get comfy. Um, and, and halfway through the sermon, it's almost as if somebody comes up with a pillow and dunts them in the head and gives them a degree because they've just gained enough credits halfway through for, for, for their exposition of the passage. It's so complex, so detailed, so rich um, that it is quite scary. And I don't know if you got that impression when you were, when you were listening to it being read. I pray that God has spoken to you. And I pray that you would go home and you would reread this passage and that God would speak to you directly from the passage. And I pray that if you were here this morning, because I know many of you were, that if you've already heard this, that you would keep listening and keep asking God to speak to you. Because I believe that he will do through this passage. There is so much here that we could talk about. However, humbly, I think, humbly, I have just decided to go with my observations. I said to Stefan before the service, I'm really just treating this as like an extended Bible read-through share. This is what God has said to me. And, and I'm not a scholar, I'm not qualified to dissect every aspect of this passage, and I'm not going to spend three or four hours doing so. You'll be glad to know. Um, I'm just going to share what I think God has spoken to me. As ever, I, I really am preaching to myself. I'm going to just try and ignore the PhD level sermons on all of it and just go with what I can see. So here are my observations. My first observation is to do with the structure of Jesus' prayer. My, my prayers are linear, and they were from a very young age, thank you, sorry, please, and, and they still follow a relatively linear kind of pattern. Jesus' prayer here is kind of linear, in that it does have a structure. He prays in verses 1 to 8 for himself and his relationship with God the Father. In verse um, 9 to 19, he prays for his 11 disciples, because Judas has left. And then finally, in verses 20 to 26, he prays for all others who will believe. So there is those kind of three very clear sections to the passage, and we'll look at them in each, each in turn. But they, they overlap, and they feed into each other. And so it's kind of like a Venn diagram. Um, and a Venn di you know, so over here, this is a Venn diagram. We've got the first circle, which is Jesus praying for God, himself and his relationship with God, the Father. And then we've got down here the... the um, him praying for his disciples, and then up here we've got him praying for all other believers. And this is, I know I, I, know I could have got a, a picture up on screen, but I felt like this was just better. Anyway, um, I'm sure it's not, but never mind. Um, th they're all overlapping, they all feed into each other, and we're going to look at that, and we'll talk about that just briefly at the end. I'm going to name this message very literally, I like to be quite a literal person. Um, I'm just going to name it, Things That Jesus Prays About that we can pray about too. Things that Jesus prays about that we can pray about too. 
That's what, we're, that's what I'm aiming for here. And I thought to myself, if prayer reveals our priorities, I want to see what God's priorities are. Now, this week, past week, I have learned um, through humbling myself that my priorities are food. <laughs> and it's not so much that I was praying for food, it's just that it captivated my thought for a great deal of the week. Food and McDonald's and doner kebabs. And one, one day, for no reason, I've not had a Pizza Hut in years, but just I couldn't stop thinking about Pizza Hut. Those were my priorities. And it's not wrong to think about food, it's not wrong to be fed and, and to be satisfied in that way, but, but my priorities, and it's indicative of my priorities in the sense that mine are always about satisfying myself, it feels like. Maybe your priorities match up with God's perfectly. Maybe they do, and great. If you could teach me how, that would be wonderful. But mine don't. Even when I, I am satisfied and I'm, I'm full of food, um, my priorities are still very messed up. Uh, my priorities are backwards. They are shit, selfish. Uh, they can be pretty stupid um, and certainly sinful at times. So I am asking God to help me to realign my priorities with his. And I'm doing that by looking at what his priorities are. So all I'm going to do is I'm going to share eight points from this passage that Jesus prays, and I'm going to suggest that I am going to try and pray for those things too. And if you would like to join me in that, then that would be wonderful, and you can note them down, and we can do that together. So verse 1 to 8, as I said, is Jesus praying about himself. And so point number one for me is pray about Jesus. Begin by praying about Jesus, but pray about Jesus. Jesus himself talks about what he's done in verse 4, for example. He says, I glorified you, God the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me. He speaks about what he has done, and when I pray, I want to talk about what Jesus has done, both in the Bible as recorded there, but in my life. I want to praise Jesus for that. I want to make sure that my prayers are shaped around talking about Jesus. More specifically, in verse 1, it says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What he means by this, when he is asking for glory, he is referring at this point to the cross that he is heading towards in less than 24 hours. The hour has come. That is where he's going. Death, sacrifice, pinned to the cross, and dying for the world. And he describes that as glory. Glorify your Son in this hour. And to us, that seems pretty backwards because it's not very glorious what he's going to go through. It's altogether very harrowing. And yet Jesus sees it as glory. And he sees it as glory because he will use that. And we, we, I hope we know this. And if you don't, then, then, then listen. He will use that humiliating experience, that, that harrowing experience, that death and that, that, his suffering to, to save the world, which he sees as glory. And from that, people will believe in him, which he sees and knows is his glory. More than that, because he also mentions glory in another context. In verse 5, he says, um, he wants to be glorified in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Which again is Jesus claiming to be absolutely eternal God. And that he says he had glory before the world existed with God the Father in his presence in heaven. Um, so that means he is going to be taken to heaven. That's what he's praying for. He's praying for glory on the cross in the hour that's coming and glory when he gets taken to heaven. And we, we see him in his glory in Revelation. John, the very author that's writing this, sees him, first-hand witness experience, 
in his glory, arrayed in splendor, clothed in rainbows, sitting on his, on, his, on his white horse and riding out in power and in triumph in the most magi- magical, not magical, but most splendid ways um, that the Bible can describe, that words can form. That is the glory that he's talking about. So this should be my prayer too. That's what I want to do, and I want you to join with me in that. Pray for Jesus to be glorified in both of those ways. Pray for him to be glorified and that people would, would see him on the cross and believe in him and be saved and pray for him to be glorified and that people would worship him as he truly is, not just as a, as a, as a man, but as eternal God. Pray that we would see him in that state. Pray that we would see that. That's what I want to pray for. In verses 9 to 19, he prays for his disciples. It's easy and, and, and definitely correct, definitely correct, that we should look at these verses and, and project ourselves onto it. And that's what we do when we read the Bible. We read it and we go, okay, I'm going to put myself in that position. So when I read Ephesians, I'm not from Ephesus. I'm not from the early church in Ephesus, but I still read what Paul says to the Ephesians, and I take that on board for myself. Yes, that's what we do when we read the Bible. When I read about the Israelites leaving Egypt, for example, and I see their struggles and they're they're, they're battling with sin and temptation, I think that's me and I need to learn from that. We project ourselves onto the Bible. It's right to do that. But I do just want to take a step back and and, and really highlight something that I think that that struck me that I think is wonderful. And that is that that Jesus is praying specifically, specifically for his, his 11 remaining disciples who he loves. I love this because it reveals to me the very personal nature of a very real and very human God. And I can't think of any other religion or worldview or, or philosophy that has the cosmic eternal ruler as, we've just, I've just, we've, as he's just claimed to be eternal from having glory before the world was created, who is so personal who knows his friends. He spent time with his disciples. He, he spent three years with them. He knew them very well. He had good relationships, good friendships, a close personal relationship with them. He knew them. And this is the eternal God. And I love that he knows and is praying specifically for the people that he knows and loves on a very, very personal level. So for me, when I look at that, apart from making me want to praise God, it also makes me want to pray for the people that I love. So point number three is pray for the people that you love. And, and, and all power to you and good, to, good for you, and I, I'm not saying it's wrong, we sometimes pray for all of Glasgow, and we aim our prayers at all of, all of Scotland or the whole world. And we're talking about billions of people at one time, and that is good, and it's right, and Jesus will do a similar thing later on in his prayer, but that can't be all our prayers. I want to very, very specifically pray for the people that I know and love, the people that God has put into my life that I know and love. Now, that's friends, that's family members, brothers, sisters, wife, my wife, you know. Um, I was going to say husbands and wives, but I only have a wife. Um, Pray for the people that you, you love, the people that you are close to. I think there is great power in targeted prayers, very targeted prayers, praying for specific people, specific situations, people that you know. I think that's really important. 
And I'm not saying it's bad to be praying big prayers for all of Glasgow or all of Scotland. That's great. But make sure, I, I, I want to make sure that I am praying for the people that I love. Specifically, what does he say to pray for? Well, he asks for protection for his disciples from the devil. In verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So point number four, it should be is pray for protection from the enemy. Because Satan's real, because he's desperate for you to fail, he's desperate for you to fall, to be discouraged, to be accused, to be depressed, to be anxious. He's desperate for you to abandon God. He is desperate for you to die. And that's pretty drastic. Um, But I don't think I'd be doing you any favors to hide that from you. And so let's pray to God for protection from that. The Bible is littered with the ways and, and, and the teachings about how Jesus is able to protect us from that in our spiritual battle. So let's pray for it. I could spend three hours just talking about that topic. I could have spent three hours just talking about the glory of God. Or I couldn't. Someone could have done. Let's pray for protection from the enemy. That's what I want to do. I want to be aware that he's real, and I want to ask God for protection. I've made a distinction, and point number five is pray for protection from the enemy and the world. I think it just says the world, point number five. Pray for protection from the world. I've made the distinction, and maybe, maybe that was wrong, but I, I want to make the distinction. Um, Jesus doesn't want us to be taken out of the world. If he did, that would be great. It would be great. We would be with him. We'd be in heaven. We would be no longer sad or, or, or anxious or worried or scared. There wouldn't be death or sickness or anything to concern ourselves with except knowing and loving God. That would be good. But he says, no, I'm not taking them out of the world. They don't belong in the world anymore. Verse 16 says they're not of the world. Um, but he, does, he wants us to live in it. But the world is fighting against us if you believe in Jesus. You are essentially no longer a part of this world in the same sense. You don't belong here. And the world will make us sad. The world will make us scared. The world will make us afraid. And we will have problems and sickness and grieving in our lives in the world. And I want protection from that. I want protection from all the things in the world that could bring us down. I want God to be with me in it. Incidentally, Jesus himself provides the answer to this in the previous chapter, John chapter 16. He says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Let's cling to that. And I want to pray to God that he would help me against the world. Also, um, he asks that we would be sanctified. Sanctified is the ongoing process for Christians um, where they essentially just become more like Jesus, where they gradually change and become more like Jesus. And so point number six says, pray to be more like Jesus. That's what I'm going to pray. I want to be more like Jesus. I want my priorities to be more like Jesus, clearly. But I want to ask my actions to be more like Jesus. So that's what I'm going to pray for. Verse 11 says that he wants his disciples to be kept, which is protected, so that they may be one, even as the Father and Son are one. Jesus wants his disciples and for us to be one, to be united. 
in the same way that Jesus is united to the Father. So I'm going to pray for unity. I don't think that this unity, and we need to be careful, I don't think this unity means that we just have to agree with everybody all the time. That's not what unity means. It doesn't mean we all hold hands and um, hug <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that. I think when I was wrestling with what it meant to be one, to be united, I looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, which gives us a strong notion of the sort of unity Jesus is going for here. He says, um, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain a unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Disunity is awful. And I can almost guarantee that many of us have experienced that. Many of us may have experienced that with a Christian church community disunity. And I'm not asking us to throw our brains out the window and to agree with everybody. That's not what I said, but, but what I think Paul, what I think Jesus is teaching us to do is to be humble, to be gentle, to have patience, to bear with each other, and be eager to maintain unity. That's literally what it says. Disunity is, is, a, is a dreadful thing personally. It can be very heartbreaking in families um, in friendships, but, it, but it also in church situations. But more than that, actually, it can also be very damaging to God's work. Um, and, and I know that. I, I've, ex- I've experienced that, and I've, I've seen other people experience that. I know from experiences that it, that it can be very damaging to, to God's work. His aim is for us to be united so that people would see and believe in Him, in Jesus. And I'm not suggesting that all churches should unite necessarily in one big church because I see God working in different denominations. It's not just re-hope that He's working. And I know He works in the Church of Scotland and the Free Church, Baptist Church, other evangelical church, brethren churches. He is working in and through them all in various degrees. He's not asking us to be united in some sort of strange Christian experiment necessarily. But He wants us to love each other. Essentially, that's what gentleness, patience, humility, and all those things would be. Love each other. I think he might be asking us to apologize if we have not been loving towards other Christians. I think he might be asking us to forgive other Christians who have hurt, each other, who have hurt us. So point number seven is, I think it's probably already up there, it says pray for Unity among Christians. Pray for unity among Christians. That is what God clearly desires. And that is what I want to pray for. And not just pray for, do something about it as well. Verse 20 says that he's not only praying for the 11 disciples, but he's praying for all those who will believe. All those who will believe. There is no uncertainty here. Uh, There's no kind of, well, maybe they'll believe if the the disciples get their act together. Jesus is leaving his disciples just now, and they're all going to run away from him in a a second when he gets arrested. They're all going to abandon him. Peter's going to deny him. He's even after that going to raise back to life again, and he's going to say, okay, everybody, go and make disciples across the whole world. Okay, goodbye. And then he leaves, and then they lock themselves in a room. But he has no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that people will believe in him. He knows. He is eternal. He has chosen people to be Christians, to be saved. He knows that. And I love the certainty that Jesus has here. 
And so he prays for all people who will believe. And that's us, by the way. Us. And I've already said to you that rightly we apply ourselves and we project ourselves on different passages, Ephesians and, and the Israelites and any other passage. We, we, I've just done it with the disciples there, what he says to the, about the disciples. We project ourselves on, but here we don't have to. Because here Jesus is praying for us, for Christians, for me, for you. And all I can say is that I, when I was reading that this this past few weeks, specifically this week, I was absolutely blown away by the personal nature of God. By the fact that it's not just something we say and we, 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 we talk about, and Crooksy O'Brien says every week, but that it's true that God really does love me. That God really does love you. I, we've just been talking about the eternal nature of God how Jesus has existed from before creation, from all time. He's always existed, and he will always exist. This morning I said from to infinity and beyond, I think I said. Um, he will always exist, and he knows us. He knows me personally. He loves me personally. He loves you personally. And immediately, immediately, many of you are thinking, He's talking about like big Christians, not just me. He's talking about like the, the minister or the elders or something. That's who he's talking I know I'm, I mean, yes, I am, but I'm also talking about you. No matter what you have done, no matter how many times you have stumbled and fallen away from God, he still loves you. He is still praying for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says he is interceding for you even now, right this moment. Jesus is standing before the throne of God the Father, pleading your case with him. He is praying for you because he loves you. You can forget everything else I've said. You have my permission. That's all for me anyway. But you have to go home believing that God loves you. And I don't, I, it, makes me, it makes me sad to think that anyone would walk out of church thinking, well, that, that passage wasn't for me. Yes, it was. You're in it. That's you. You're in those words and Jesus is praying for you. That causes me, and it caused me this week to worship God. I hope it does the same for you as well. Please, please know, we are not joking when we say God really does love you and knows you. Bonus point, right? And I asked Stefan twice to make it come in jumping and sparkling, but it, I don't think he did that. Um, bonus point, Jesus knows who you are. You are not here by accident. You're not here today by accident. He knows exactly who you are. He has always known you, and he loves you. The Bible is about you. Jesus is praying for you. <laughs> I can't help but be excited by that. What does he pray for us? Well, he does pray all the other things that I've said, and he prays for us to be with him. In verse 24, he says that he wants us to be with me where I am, which is heaven. He wants us to be with him. The, throughout the Bible, the general running theme is that God created the world so that he could be with us. That we could be, he could be with us. That's why he made Adam, and then he walked with him. 
and Adam and Eve sinned, and, and there was a separation. And all the way throughout this Bible, there is this running theme of the presence of God, being with God, knowing God. That's why when Moses saw God's face, he started to glow in the face. There is this, this notion that we are going to one day eventually go back, all full circle, all the way back around to being in God's presence, to being with him. That is what Jesus is praying for us. That is what's going to happen. That's what heaven is, is being with God. When I was a youth worker, I used to do this thing with kids, and I'd get them to draw a picture of what they think heaven was like. And just for a laugh, I would, draw, I would always draw um, swimming pools filled with iron brew, because um, I thought that sounded great. Sticky, but great. Um, that's not what heaven is, mercifully. Heaven is being with God, being in His presence. And we can't, we can't possibly know the joy that that will bring us one day. But, but, it, but it is what we should be praying for. It's what I want to be praying for. Now, again here, I could spend three hours talking about perseverance for Christians, to keep going, because that is a very complex topic. I'm not going to spend any time talking about it at all. All I'm going to say is that I'm going to pray that I will be with him where he is one day, that I will be with him in glory, that I will be with him in heaven. Now, for many of you, that mean, might mean just that you want to be saved. For me, it means that I want to keep going. I want to keep going, and I want to finish well, and I want to one day be with him where he is. The Bible, in a short few hours from the time that he speaks this word, the temple curtain, which separates man and God, is going to be torn from top to bottom. And there's now going to be that possibility to go into the most holy place where God is. God will be able to dwell with men. That is what happened when Jesus died on the cross. And if you are not yet a Christian and you want to, to, to find out more about that, then I urge you to speak to someone after the service or speak to me. But, but I, I want all of us, all of us to, to know God and to be with God. That is the possibility that he created for us when he died on the cross. A door's open. God's presence is open to us. The hope of being with him where he is is open to you. And I urge you to take it. So those are the eight things I'm going to pray for. And I would love for you to join me in, in, in praying those things as well. Just to finish, I, I love the complexity of Jesus' prayer, and I love that it isn't easy to follow. When I first read this, Brian said, oh, it's John 17. I read it, and I thought, Brian, you're having a laugh. Um, it's very complex, but I, I, I've grown to love that because actually, although it's linear and he prays in this specific order, it is just it's circular. It goes round and round, not in a bad way in a really, really good way, because every aspect of his prayer, if you look at it, and I urge you to go home and keep reading it, every aspect of it links into another part. So he says that unity comes from the protection from the enemy, which then leads to more glory for God. God's glory produces from itself protection from the enemy, which then leads to unity. Protection comes from God's glory on the cross, and leads to unity, leading to salvation, which in itself, therefore, leads to more glory for God. It is just going round and round, and it's all intertwined, and it's perfect, perfect. I love Jesus' example of prayer here. I could go on for three or four more hours, um, but I'll not bother. Instead, I'll just give you three challenges. Um, challenge number one is this. I, I challenge you to join me in strongly pushing for more prayer in our daily lives. Prayer is hard. And I don't want you to be under the impression that anybody, I don't think, has it sorted. Prayer is hard. The enemy hates it. One day, I've had this thought recently, I kept thinking, 
one day I'll, I'll, I'll be dead and I will be standing before God and the one thing I'll regret not doing more of is praying. So join me in strongly pushing for more prayer in, in my daily life. Um, number two is assess your priorities. Fasting may have revealed your priorities to you, but assess your priorities, list them. Perhaps seek God and ask if they should change. Maybe your priorities are fine. Mine aren't. And I'm going to seek God and ask him to help me change my priorities. And point number three I've said is, is, is forgive Christians who've wronged you and seek forgiveness if you've wronged them. I think we should do that for more unity, for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the kingdom and more people believe. And I think that's what we should be pursuing. That's what God wants, I think.